American Pulps presents Under the Knife, the story of a wannabe actress turned Nazi hunter. Hollywood, California, 1952. Any fool would recognize that she was Marilyn Monroe, even with her famous lips peeled back to reveal bloody fangs. She remained beautiful, despite her frenzy of fear and rage. The once pristine flesh of her naked body was now degraded with scrapes and bruises. Nails ripped from her clawed hands as she pounded the antique steel bars. She threatened her captor with a series of shrill growls. The doctor sighed, disappointed. She had been his finest work yet, but despite all of her beauty, she was merely an animal, just like the rest. The doctor had to remind himself that animals could never appreciate what he had done for them. Soon, however, she would accept the futility of escape. Soon she would submit, like Greta, Ava, Rita, and Grace had before her. He chuckled as Marilyn's bleeding fingers reached in vain for his throat. Despite this setback, it had been a good night. Dr. Gerhard Thedrick possessed a rugged elegance. When looking into his eyes, one felt like a cluster of balloons tied to a ship anchor, whipping and wobbling all around while those eyes remained still and unchanged. As Hollywood's most accomplished plastic surgeon, Dr. Thedrick saw nature's aesthetic as a series of uncorrected accidents. His passion was bending the quaint savagery of natural beauty to his will, and he was the best in the world at it. The good doctor spent his working week making Hollywood stars impossibly beautiful, and on the weekends, he would indulge in his very special hobby. First, he would have a candle-lit dinner with his wife, Sophie. She was a demure, accommodating woman whose grace and regal features would be the envy of fairy tale royalty. After eating, he would light his pipe, kiss Sophie on the cheek, and stroll across his sprawling estate to his laboratory. On his way, he would pass his private zoo. It wasn't much, but he was proud of it. Or rather, he was proud of the animal's potential. Each weekend, Dr. Thedrick would open the monkey cage and pluck a shapely specimen. All of the other monkeys shrieked with protest, but the one he held froze with terror. No matter how grueling his work schedule was, Dr. Thedrick would find the time to transform one of these monkeys into a miniature Hollywood starlet. If the faces of the rich and famous were the doctor's canvas, then these monkeys were his treasured sketch pad. He had to work quickly. The monkeys were small and could only handle the anesthesia for a short period of time. With the dexterity and glee of a ping-pong player, he'd melt their hair off with chemicals, remove the tails, break bones, and reset them. While Wagner operas crackled from an old record player, Dr. Thedrick would stay up all night cutting, stitching, injecting, plumping, and plucking. As a finishing touch, he would stitch a wig onto the creature's head and use a tattoo gun to apply permanent, glamorous makeup. 
The end result was a miniature silver screen siren whose former monkeyness would only be revealed by her snarling and spitting disposition. Much like his latest creation, the ornery Miss Monroe. If money had been an issue, and it most certainly was not, the doctor could have taken pictures of these beasts and sold them to cheesecake magazines as the genuine article. On Monday morning, Dr. Thedrick would place his latest creation in a new cage, which was a miniature version of his own mansion. It was teeming with chattering, hopping beauties. He would blow them a kiss and get ready for work. Back in Ohio, Katie Ulrich could never have known she'd be plain by Hollywood standards. When she was a teenage beauty queen in her coal town, she never thought there would be a million girls out here with the same story. Katie's upbringing told her that the things she pined for were frivolous and stupid. She had considered giving up acting every year since she started. She'd done a few roles that nobody would remember, and she was always relegated to parts that could be described as homely friend. In real life, she was quite pretty. But on screen, her face and body were plain vanilla. Men had brains like birds, and they were programmed to look for shiny things. Or, as one casting director stated when he didn't realize she was within earshot, with a better nose and some decent tits, she'd really be something. The actresses she lost roles to spilled a cascade of sexuality and drenched the camera lens. These women understood how to bewitch a man and tear his self-control to shreds with a pouty look or a wiggle of the hips. All Katie had was her ambition. And even that was waning the longer she struggled to get parts. She never made any apologies for wanting to be famous, even though pride was one of her mother's dreaded deadly sins. She was a gifted actress, that was undeniable. But acting was a skill that would not become important until after she got her big break. There were some that preached a doctrine about it being all about the work for its own sake. Anybody foolish enough to say that in Hollywood was either too stupid to buy a bus ticket to the avant-garde nowhere, or they were trying to keep from killing themselves. Van Gogh did it for the art. He also cut off his own ear and died penniless. Katie wasn't cut out to toil in obscurity. In order to keep her days free for auditions, Katie worked nights as a waitress for private events. The job entailed carrying trays of cocktails and forcing a giggle every time a guy pinched her ass. Katie endured by knowing her fame would erase any humiliation. The work was sporadic at best, and she resented it until she was late on rent. This month, she was very late. Sometimes these parties hosted the biggest names in Hollywood, and Katie would feel like a smashed bug staring into the windshield of a Rolls Royce. She marveled at the cold detachment of the stars. Nobody needed to tell them they were better. They were a different breed, a different race almost. It was as if they had only been masquerading as normal humans their entire lives, and when they were finally anointed by the movie gods, they could shed their cloak of mediocrity and sameness. Back in Gloucester, Ohio, two men proposed marriage to a detached and naive Katie. 
but she knew that reciprocating either of those boys' devotion would mean spending an eternity as a nobody housewife. Without any exaggeration, she'd rather die. Thoughts of those boys were far away as she sat in man's Chinese theater. The lights went down and she felt her stomach drop. This was her big break. A supporting role in a William Holden film. She played Annie, a shy wartime nurse that pined for Bill as he recovered in a hospital. It was the biggest and best role she had played yet. She knew it was finally going to lead to something. That night, she realized something that a lot of girls in Hollywood learned the hard way. When you first sit in the darkened theater as a child, you imagine yourself beaming from that wall with great stars like Clark Stanton and showing the small world of your girlhood exactly who you have become. You pine for a transformation only guaranteed to butterflies and swans. You envision boozy dinners, red carpet premieres, and rubbing elbows with the stars as you remark to yourself that they are much shorter or older looking in person. But then, after several years of botched auditions and devil's bargains, you are clamoring simply for a role that will prove you didn't waste your youth. She had no date to watch the film with, but she did bring several of the girls from her boarding house with her. They were all actresses, of course, and Katie reveled in their masked envy. Her big scene came on, and Katie's heart abscessed. Catherine Madeline Ulrich was not the actress on the screen. Another woman was playing the role. In fact, she was not a woman as much as she was a swelling explosion of flesh. A platinum blonde bombshell with ivory curves and fertility goddess breasts that rose like biscuits from the top of her nurse uniform. Her voice was breathy and vulnerable. She was every man's trophy and every man's demise. Katie hated her. This bitch had the audacity to be recast in her role. If that woman had magically appeared from the screen, Katie would have strangled the tart with her own bra. Katie swore she heard a smug titter emanate from the other girl's lips. If someone had put out a cigarette in Katie's eye, it would not have broken her trance of humiliation. After the screening, Katie walked home by herself. She had quit smoking a year ago. She bought a pack of Luckies and smoked two of them back to back. She was sitting on the stoop of her boarding house and lighting a fourth when she saw a lumbering figure materialize from the night fog. It was Fred, her estranged fiancé. In a tremendous romantic gesture, he had taken a train from Ohio to win her back and perfectly outlined the life that he saw himself building with her. Katie only heard one plan. She was to come back with him and become a wife that was quiet and dead inside. And that was never going to happen. Fred was a decent man who made a good living, and he took it very hard when she told him that she wouldn't be any man's woman. She told him the same thing in Ohio, and Tinseltown's evils hadn't eroded her sense of purpose. This wasn't going as Fred had planned. He ridiculed her dreams, calling them a dangerous self-absorption. She had a good man willing to take good care of her, 
and she'd rather live in a fleabag flop house while she sold her soul to a ridiculous fantasy of stardom. He worked himself into a sweat as he told her, if I wasn't so angry, I'd recognize that you are sick and you need the kind of help that you'll never get out here. Katie wasn't listening to Fred's diatribe. Instead, she soothed herself with thoughts of one day showing up to their town in a limousine. She'd be pleasantly toasted on champagne and act as if she didn't remember who Fred was. One day you won't even recognize me as the girl you tried to control, Katie spat. Fred shook his head. I already don't recognize you. You're throwing away a good life for... for this. You'll force your parents to die lonely while you're out here fighting for crumbs. What am I trying to convince you for? You've already made up your mind. As Fred walked away into the night fog, she was already regarding him as a faded memory. It was as if he had passed away, and every step he took into the darkness was another year that he had been dead and gone. The anger helped her ignore the guilt she felt about her parents. They hadn't seen her in years, and she had been terrible about writing. She told herself for the millionth time that it would all be forgiven when her name was in lights. Katie cried that night, burying her head into her pillow so the rest of the girls wouldn't hear. The next day, her feelings had scarred over and she was at an audition, reading for a casting director she'd met many times. Katie gave a fantastic performance for the role of Gary Cooper's secretary in some melodrama. Okay, so perhaps this would be her big break. The casting director called her into his office and told her to shut the door. Katie was very familiar with the concept of the casting couch, but only through other actresses' stories. She recognized the situation, but did not know how to acknowledge it without insulting the man who held her future in his hands. Katie made a split-second decision to risk the closed door. She told herself that she'd be able to handle any potential crisis. She had vowed long ago not to be one of those girls, and she wasn't about to start sleeping her way into roles now. If he tried anything unsavory, she'd scream her head off and strike out at any part of him that poked out or dangled. Katie sat down, ankles crossed, and strained to affect an air of disinterested professionalism. She hoped to appear not to need this job. She was failing. The casting director sat next to her. Katie's body tensed, but he did not move closer. He was very sweet about what he said next, which made the words hurt so much more. He told Katie that she just didn't have what it took to turn men on. Not on the screen, anyway. She was a nice girl, and he felt it was his duty to save her any more pain. Motion pictures were not going to be her ticket to a better life. Katie forgot herself and lashed out. She couldn't turn men on? Who the hell was this guy? She told him that he was a pathetic man who reigned over a small corner of Hollywood, and when she was a big star, she would make sure that he never worked again. Who the hell was he to tell her that she wasn't a star? The casting director returned fire, and all the compassion dried up from his face. You know what the problem is, dearie? We're in a business of finding people's fantasies, and you are not one. Your picture's not gonna get ripped out of a magazine and put up above a soldier's cot in the barracks. You're the reality they settle for and go home to. 
so I would suggest going back to your little corner of nowhere before your looks go to shit. Go be somebody's everything there, because you're nobody's anything here. Katie got back to the boarding house and saw that her meager belongings were piled on the porch. Her landlord, a heaping lady with meaty forearms, croaked out the window. Rent was due Monday. New tenant moved in. The landlord was closing the window as Katie protested. You can't do this to me. I'm working tonight. I'll have the money tomorrow. There was no response. Katie had seen this before with other girls. The case was closed. She was out on her ass. Katie thought about the places she could stay. These were places like hot sheet hotels, shop doorways, and movie theaters. If she only had a car, she'd just sleep in that. Luckily, she was working a party at some big shot doctor's house. There were bound to be some good tippers in attendance. When Katie saw the party guests that night, she was stunned. There were more celebrities at this house than anywhere she'd ever been. It felt like Saturday night at the Brown Derby. She watched the various movie stars cavort at the pool. Bill Holden was there, but she was too embarrassed to approach him, and he was too drunk to recognize his own reflection anyway. He kept stammering about going for a dip in the pool. Katie imagined a remake of the opening shot in Sunset Boulevard. Luckily, he passed out before he attempted to swim. Katie maintained her detachment until she found herself face-to-face with Marilyn Monroe. Seeing Marilyn in person brought about dizziness and uncontrolled sweating, like teenage love. And for the first time, Katie truly confronted the idea that she may not have what it takes to be a star. As suddenly as Marilyn had appeared, she slinked her way through the crowd and vanished. Katie saw the party's host, Dr. Thedrick, hold court. She saw the doctor's wife, Sophie, was it? Receive a steady stream of guests. She was brutally elegant and sophisticated. The titanic-sized oil portrait of her and her husband that dominated the entire foyer didn't do her justice. Here, in real life, without the Klieg lights and makeup artists, she was more beautiful than the movie stars. Sophie's dark hair and eyes were set against alabaster skin, like a worldly and dangerous version of a cartoon Snow White. She was an exclamation point on the doctor's astounding life, and she was another woman with the kind of star quality that Katie envied. Katie took a break, something that her boss forbade. She lit a cigarette and wondered where she was going to sleep that night. Dr. Thedrick happened to be relaxing by the pool with a cigar at the same time. Katie tried to sneak away before the doctor saw her. Instead, he waved her over and told her to sit down. He asked how she was enjoying the party and made other small talk that a man in his position didn't have to make. In fact, he was so debonair, Katie couldn't figure out if he was making a pass at her or merely being gracious. She felt the need to reciprocate, so she asked him what kind of medicine he practiced. Dr. Thedrick chuckled. I have very private patients that require the utmost discretion. Katie smiled. Oh yeah? They need pep pills that bad? Katie always did that. She didn't think when she spoke and sometimes made observations that were none of her business. 
I'm not that kind of doctor. My passion is the creation and preservation of beautiful flesh. Katie's focus sharpened. Are you a plastic surgeon? Dr. Thedrick didn't make any gesture to confirm at first. He then tilted his glass, winked, and finished the rest of his drink. Well, I'm no Dr. Frankenstein, but I'm good at what I do. Katie's eyes widened like the two silver dollars she didn't have. Are your patients here tonight? Not all of them. Not yet. Who? She was like a child asking a firefighter rapid-fire questions about trucks and Dalmatians. Who do you think? It's not Marilyn, is it? No, it couldn't be. You could say many names and be correct. I think I just found out there's no Santa Claus. This got a hearty laugh from the mysterious doctor. He was tickled by this mouthy sprite of a woman and proceeded to dish on all the other people he had worked on. In particular, he told her that the most real thing on Burt Lancaster was his eyes. The rest was created through surgery. Katie confided to him that she is an actress, but has been told time and time again that she is too plain to be a star. Dr. Thedrick examined her features. He used his fountain pen on a cloth napkin. He first sketched an impressive rendition of what Katie looked like. Next, he sketched a more ideal version of what she would look like after surgery. The doctor had had a few brandies at this point. As far as he knew, he was merely talking shop. But when Katie saw the first two sketches, she sat in stunned silence. He had captured her essence. The improvements he made to her features were barely perceptible, but he elevated them to a level of artistry. Under the doctor's modifications, she was just so much more... So much more there. Dr. Thedrick did a full body sketch of her as well, able to see past her clothing and capture the naked body she saw every day in the mirror. Then he drew a rendition of her ideal body, and the results were equally stunning. If this hypothetical surgery had occurred, Katie would retain all of the idiosyncrasies that made her unique, but she would possess that elusive star quality she coveted. Dr. Thedrick was still in his creative zone and very happy with his sketch. And the way he described it, we people are merely the first draft of who we could be. God gives us life and we decide how to mold it. We could take only the raw materials of that life and root around in the dirt like beasts, or we can maximize the resources that he has given us. Why wouldn't the same philosophy apply to the totality of our existence? The faces and bodies we were born with are merely a suggestion. Our looks are a vessel for our personalities. So why would it be other people's responsibility to recognize our finer qualities unaided? Couldn't we say that it's our responsibility to make people want to know us? Somebody ought to love you not just for who you are, but also for who you can become. So if the outside can become a better reflection of what is inside, then there's no reason somebody should not have everything. Katie wept. She couldn't help it. She was staring at the solution to all of her problems and tormented by the fact that she would never be able to afford it. Dr. Thedrick saw Katie's tears and realized he had made a mistake. He got carried away with the drawing and didn't realize he would be salting a deep wound. How foolish he was to tantalize her like that. He apologized profusely for the pain he caused, but her tears kept coming. 
Katie, for her part, knew that her tears could be used for the performance that changed everything. But the feelings were authentic. But they were all too real. She now only had to make the doctor feel them. Because she would never get this opportunity again. Katie told the doctor what she wanted. She wanted the nose she deserved, breasts that would get her what she wanted, and the legs that would keep her on top. She wanted all these surgeries to happen during the same procedure. She was interested in metamorphosis. This was her life, and it was time for her to have the one that she deserved. Up until this point, Dr. Thedrick was evaluating Katie with the detachment of a realtor touring a bargain home. But upon seeing her tears, he was overwhelmed with a rush of protective pity for Katie. And he had begun to want her. Badly. He hadn't thought this way about many women. But he could make her perfect. And unlike all the others, he was certain it would work. This time. Dr. Thedrick was now trying to mask his own eagerness. He found himself suddenly desperate to give this young woman the gift of his best work ever. He told Katie that he had more than enough high-paying clients, and he couldn't help gushing. He somehow knew deep down that she would be his ultimate canvas. If she became a big star, she could pay him back. If she didn't, then he would have helped a woman look as beautiful on the outside as she does on the inside. Katie hugged Dr. Thedrick and wept again, this time with joy and disbelief. Katie packed her things that night and headed to Dr. Thedrick's clinic in Palm Springs. Her friends had told her in the past that plastic surgery was a terrible idea. They tried to scare her with the notion that she would lose her identity. Katie found that warning to be foolish. The people against plastic surgery were either born beautiful or too deep into their hatred of the beautiful to stomach becoming one themselves. In the doctor's office was a photo of Sophie. Although it was a photograph, the woman's poise and focus made the snapshot look like an oil painting. The doctor saw Katie staring at the picture and mused, I have nothing to do with my wife's beauty. She was blessed by nature and I am humbled by her looks. I believe that the beauty of Sophie was meant to serve as an inspiration for my work. When Michelangelo was studying, he would pay grave diggers to exhume bodies so he could study the intimate details of the human form. That was the doctor's gruesome way of saying that she was his muse. Well, she certainly is beautiful. Sophie is also a fabulously intelligent and well-read woman. But life is not without its balance and sense of humor. She is a dreadful cook and refuses to do any manual labor. She is a true queen and embraces that role completely. As Dr. Thedrick was prepping for surgery, Katie looked at him in the harsh operating room light. He was athletic and one could just as easily imagine him slashing at a canvas in a half-manic meditative state like Jackson Pollock. Katie examined that last thought and decided it was better if he didn't channel Pollock while she was under the knife. Before scrubbing into surgery, Dr. Thedrick retired to his office. He had been nervous with the others, but this time he wanted to savor the moment. He needed an edge, so he whipped up a vitamin shot. When the vitamins hit his system, it felt just like the old days. Katie woke up, as if from a nap. Her face and body felt like they had been removed and glued back on. 
The nerves had been severed. The anesthesia in her IV drip had given her a decidedly alien feeling. She looked up at the ceiling of the recovery room. It felt homey. Scented candles burned, and there were little domestic details that gave her comfort. She was bandaged from head to toe in an intricate tapestry of gauze. She tried to touch her bandages, but her hands were bound. She found that strange. The instant she pulled at her straps, a nurse named Barbara came in to comfort her. Barbara was a warm and dignified woman who appeared to be in her 60s, but she moved like she was 20 years younger. Barbara doted on Katie with the practiced, efficient compassion of a professional caretaker. She cooed reassurances that Katie would make a full recovery. The next few weeks were a blur of feedings, injections, and bandage changing. Through the fog of coma and muscular paralysis, Katie would catch glimpses of Dr. Thedrick and Barbara chatting excitedly about her progress. They would unwrap her bandages, smile, then cover her face back up. There were no windows and no mirrors in the room. To Katie, life outside the confines of her healing body was a mystery. A few weeks passed and Katie's face was experiencing itself again. The nerves were reattaching, and the itching nearly drove her to madness. Perhaps this is why they kept her hands bound? The temptation to scratch her surgical wounds would be too intense to resist. Katie tried to speak, but her mouth was not responding. The words only came out as a ghostly echo in her own mind. She wanted to know how the procedures went. She wanted to know how her recovery was going. And most of all, she wanted to know what she looked like. She would have given anything to have Barbara place a mirror in front of her. Barbara must have seen the longing in Katie's eyes because she volunteered some information. Although what she said seemed as unreal as the numb flesh that cloaked her skeleton, Barbara said, Madame had a most unfortunate accident. But fear not, Madame will make a full recovery and be as beautiful as ever. Katie tried to tell Barbara that she had the wrong room in the hospital and that Katie was the woman recovering from a nose and boob job. If there was ever such a thing as a happy surgery, then this was definitely it. Katie was now concerned that the hospital had gotten their records mixed up, and her mind ran wild with the potential pitfalls of getting the wrong recovery medications and treatment. She couldn't feel her legs. Did she still have them? She wasn't sure. A familiar tingling radiated from her left forearm. It started from the needle of the IV and soon warmed the rest of her body. It must have been morphine. Nothing else could feel this good. Soon, Katie wasn't thinking about anything. She was just floating in an ocean that was as cozy as a bathtub and scented with coffee cake. Dr. Thedrick checked her bed. Katie was relieved to see him. At least the hospital had summoned the correct doctor. But his demeanor had changed. He was no longer professional. He looked at her like a man smitten. The next time Dr. Thedrick and Barbara unwrapped Katie's face and their clinical banter gave way to giddiness, Katie tried to speak. But she could only hear herself as echoing thoughts. Anticipation and fear were sending her mind into morbid convulsions. Her muscles were paralyzed. She could not form the sounds her thoughts were making. She had no physical voice, yet she was shrieking, begging for a mirror. 
Her pleas for an answer became more and more shrill, but there's no way they were just ignoring her. Dr. Thedrick was ready to take out her stitches. His face grew more animated with each thread he removed. Several of the stitches were quite thin, and he had to wear his bifocals to avoid error. The doctor's face became level with Katie's, and she finally saw her reflection. She saw her reflection, but she did not see her face. The face she saw, she had seen before. Not in the mirror, but up on a wall. Back in the quiet void of uncertainty, the need for revelation had overwhelmed her like rising water to a drowning victim. Now she knew the truth. Well, she was beautiful, far more beautiful than she had ever imagined. Because when she stared into the ghostly reflection of the doctor's lenses, she saw his wife, Sophie, staring back at her. Join us next time for Under the Knife, Part 2, where Katie fights to maintain her true identity while her grip on reality is slipping. Can she escape before the doctor changes her memory as thoroughly as he has changed her face? We hope you have enjoyed this American Pulps production, and we truly appreciate you listening. The best way to support us is to go wherever you find podcasts and leave a five-star review. To get an illustrated book version of today's episode, head over to AmericanPulps.com and join our mailing list. It's free. Find us on social media at American Pulps. If you want to find out right away how our wannabe actress turns into the world's most elite Nazi hunter, you can purchase the full Under the Knife ebook at Amazon.com for $1.99. Today's episode was written and produced by John Borges and Matt Pagorges and read by John Borges. It was recorded at Mr. Bad Example Studios in Los Angeles, California, with original music by the rich and powerful. American Pulps thanks you again for visiting this melting pot of mayhem, and we look forward to bringing you more trash fiction for classy people. <laughs>